Welcome to the Activist Insight Podcast, Beyond the Boardroom, a supplement to our monthly podcast, which takes you through the top shareholder activism stories as told by Activist Insight Monthly. Here we discuss shareholder activism with some of the industry's top experts. I'm Ilana DeRay, a financial reporter with Activist Insight, and today we are chatting with Gabriel Radzeminski, Managing Director of Australian activist investor Sandin Capital. Sandin is a dedicated activist in Australia that previously ran campaigns at Jindalby Metals, Smith City Group, and Fleetwood. Today, Gabriel talks to us about activism in his home country. Australia saw a slight increase in the number of companies publicly subjected to activist demands so far this year, with 50 companies targeted by an activist as of August 31st, up from 49 during the same period last year, according to data from Activist Insight Online. Yet the number of board seats gained by activists has slightly dipped to 36, from 40 during the same period in 2018. Hi, Gabriel. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alana. I appreciate the opportunity. What made you become an activist? I've been investing for a few years before we uh, sort of realized the error of our ways. I think the best way of describing it is to sort of take a few steps back, a habit I'd sort of developed for myself. And that was whenever making an investment, obviously there'd be a thesis behind the investment. You would then make it and then often it was a question of see what happened. And I got into the habit of conducting sort of post-mortems on my investment to work out sort of four things, whether the analysis was correct or not and whether the outcome that we enjoyed or suffered was the result of good or bad fortune. Because sometimes we had really great results, but ultimately it was sort of okay analysis and we just got lucky. Other times we had really good analysis and things just didn't work out. And so that sort of mindset, I started thinking about things. And as I went through that process over a number of years of just, you know, each and every investment we'd make would sort of sit down and have a think about that. I started realizing that particularly the ones that didn't go so well, some of them, the outcomes may have been different had things been done differently. And so that was sort of, you know, depending on your view of activism, that was my sort of ascension into the, uh, you know, higher consciousness of activism or the descent to the seven circles of hell. Basically, it's about trying to understand whether you can change the status quo for better outcomes. What are some legal and structural factors that make Australia ripe for activism? Well, there's a number of things. So on the legal side of things, we're very fortunate here, despite the fact that activism is not that well known, not that widely practiced, we've actually got some of the most favorable legal and regulatory frameworks for shareholder and investor rights anywhere in the world. So for example, a couple of things, shareholder rights here are very clearly and simply defined in our main legal uh, or legislative instrument, the Corporations Act. It basically sets out what rights investors have from an activist perspective, particularly the right to call meetings the right to propose resolutions at general meetings, the right to nominate directors. And the threshold on those matters is 5%, which means that the threshold is quite clear and simple. Obviously, harder to achieve in larger companies, but there is a twist. You can also convene, call, meetings, exercise shareholder rights if you're able to collect more than 100 signatures from shareholders or members. So there's that sort of framework that clearly enunciates the rights that shareholders have to try and impose their views on on boards. The other side of things on the regulatory side, we have for example, a takeovers panel, which is sort of modeled on the UK institution, which was designed to try and avoid corporate control transactions getting bogged down in court. And if you think about it, often activist campaigns will lead to control uh, transactions. The other thing that we fortunately don't have here is we don't have staggered boards and we don't have poison pills. So our corporate 
structures, corporate arrangements are reasonably straightforward by comparison to the US particularly. So we think that the consequences of what I've just described is that activism here, contention between shareholders and boards and management, is able to be fought out in the court of shareholder opinion rather than courts of law, which means that if you can persuade a majority of shareholders of the merits of a proposal, it will inevitably pass. So in that sense, it's very democratic. On the flip side, what are some challenges that activists might face in Australia? Well, I think there's challenges that activists face everywhere. And I think the, the main one is inertia. Trying to overcome inertia is the biggest challenge. If you think to the way a lot of fund managers and investors describe the characteristics they like, in investments, you'll often find them describing companies that have predictable, reliable operations and cash flow, companies that have stable management. All of those words, all of those factors go to support the notion that investors like the status quo. Basically, they would prefer that things are tomorrow the way they were today, hopefully with a slight improvement. So I think there's the general challenge that all activist investors face, which is to try and overcome the inertia and change the status quo. In Australia, I think we have a few particular challenges. The first is there aren't that many people who do activism or who do it consistently. We've got a very concentrated market uh, in Australia, both in terms of the composition of the major indices, but also in terms of investors. And I don't mean sort of by number of investors, but by type. You've also got some cultural aspects. Australia is a great place to live. It's a great place to raise a family. It's a great place to travel to, visit, you know, wide brown land, seas, coral reefs, all these wonderful things. But I think that's also given us culturally a bit of complacency. A historian wrote a book about Australia entitled The Lucky Country. And a lot of people who haven't read the book think that it talks about how lucky Australia is. It's probably more about the fact that Australia feels lucky and therefore has often not taken advantage of opportunities that it has because it feels that everything's okay. Uh, there's an Australian idiom that says she'll be right. And I think that's what a lot of investors apply. They're very tolerant, which is socially is a good thing. I don't think it's such a good thing from an investment perspective. Investors here are typically very reluctant to sanction poorly performing companies. It plays into the whole notion of active versus passive investment management. The community here is small. Most people in business and investments would know each other within three, quite possibly two degrees of separation. That causes a further complication in that because of those close relationships, people are very reluctant to sanction for fear of the personal costs very difficult when, for example, you know, you might be the member of the same golf club, uh, your children might be at the same school. It's a very concentrated, small community that uh, I think helps entrench incumbency. You've then also got the dominance of very large investors who have their own views on things. Part of what we do is simply accept that framework and factor it into how we pick our target. From our perspective, there's no point picking a company that has lots of opportunities for improvement if the shareholders aren't going to support it. So we think very carefully about identifying who our fellow shareholders might be to try and understand whether that company has rational decision makers, whether they can be persuaded with facts and uh, sound argument, or whether there's just no point trying it. Which sectors are frequently targeted in Australia, and why are so many small companies targeted? Well, I think I can answer the second part of that much more easily than the first one. Small companies and, and Activist Insight publishes some fantastic league tables of, you know, number of activist campaigns that are occurring in, around the world at any given time. And obviously people can read your magazine to see what's happening in Australia. And there's actually quite a lot of campaigns per se, but they're typically what I would describe as accidental or occasional activists or one-offs, where the campaign has been launched because of a specific set of circumstances in a particular company involving a particular shareholder. So it could be a large shareholder of a small 
manufacturing company who may have previously been the founder, for example, who decides that's not being run well anymore. If you were to break down those figures into occasional or accidental activists versus dedicated activist firms, the numbers would be very, very low. So the reason a lot of small companies are targeted by number is that's where there's opportunity. There's you know a lot of underperforming companies um, at the small end of town. It also means that the size of the amount of capital required is much lower. In terms of sectors, I don't know that there is a generalization that I can make. If I look at how we approach things, the sectors change in time. They change over time through the business cycle. Often we need the benefit of hindsight to identify this. But looking back, we've often found that there's a theme, a rhyme to the sector that we've made a lot of money from in a period. And that could be simply because of the business conditions in that sector. You know, For example, there's been times where we've had exposure to a number of companies in one industry. Mineral Sands was one that I can think of of a couple of years ago. That was simply because there were a couple of companies operating in that industry that were subject to the macro factors affecting the industry, oversupply, falling commodity prices, dire outlook projected by investors as to the future. And we were able to identify some other drivers of value in the companies we invested in. The sectors tend to evolve and change over time um, rather than to say, you know, there's always opportunities in this sector. I think it's also worth touching on our view that other than for some of the largest activist investors in the world, and I'm thinking particularly of Elliott and their campaign at BHP, there is not that much opportunity for activism in our mega cat dogs at the very top end of our market. And there's a couple of reasons for that. I don't think you can say that it's because they're really well-run companies that don't need the attention of an activist, far from it. But I think it's simply by virtue of the size and also the incredibly diffuse shareholder base that we have in Australia. A lot of these very large companies, their largest shareholder might be 3 4%. And so it becomes very difficult to get a consensus position. And you've really got to pick your targets carefully. I think uh, Elliot picked BHP well, both from a, you know, an operational underperformance perspective, but also it was pretty much an international company. Uh, it had a lot of international investors in the stock that they were able to persuade. I think also there are some sectors that are difficult to target because of regulatory constraints, and those would be banking, insurance, and to a lesser degree, gaming. Each of them have their own specific shareholding restrictions, regulatory issues around ownership, um, ownership and control, ownership and influence. But that doesn't mean that those sectors don't need uh, shareholder engagement. For the system to work, you've got to have a good tripartite uh, relationship. Boards have to oversee management. You've got to have management with integrity, but shareholders also need to be part of that equation. And I think what shareholders can bring is accountability to boards to ensure that boards hold management accountable. When people think shareholder activism in Australia, they often think of corporate raider Sir Ron Briarly. What was your relationship with the investor? Well, I imagine he would give a wry smile at the description corporate raider. A lot of the world's raiders, I think, reinvented themselves as activists. I think Ron still uh, would happily go by the name of corporate raider. I've had the good fortune of working with Ron for nearly uh, six, seven years, and that came about serendipitously and, funnily enough, as a result of an activist campaign. A number of years ago, I was asked by one of my investors to run a campaign to get control of a small closed-end fund um, that had fallen on bad times, a company called India Equities Fund which we did and we paired it back. We had run it down to just some cash and we're looking around at things to do. And suddenly out of uh, the blue, there appeared this uh, company on the register. I wasn't familiar with the company at first, so we did some searches and realized that it was uh, Saron's private uh, investment entity. So you can imagine the alarm bells ring. An activist manager being targeted by a corporate raider, it sort of looked like a recipe for disaster, or at least from my end. And so we engaged Saron and, uh, and I spoke, the major shareholder and Saron spoke, and everyone together came to a a position where Sir Ron put a proposal to recapitalise 
that small company, recapitalized it at a 30% premium for the uh, incumbent shareholders. So it was a deal that you basically couldn't refuse. We put it together and then I thought that was the end of my uh, sort of budding career in uh, running a listed company. And Zeron turned around and I said to him, to, you know, if there was any opportunity to continue working, I would be very grateful for that. And he turned around and uh, said, well, someone's got to run it. And most recently, Zeron announced his intention to retire. And as part of that, we've decided to put two of our closed-end funds together. So the company that he controls, Mercantile Investment Company, which is a, an ASX-listed closed-end fund, is being taken over by one of the companies that we manage, Sanding Capital Investments. The recommended uh, transaction, the target, Mercantile, their independent directors are recommended in favour of the transaction. Independent experts, everyone's concluded that it's fair and reasonable. So Ron has joined the board of our closed-end fund. He's also become our largest investor. You know, it's the next phase the next step of the relationship. We're expecting that notwithstanding his retirement, he'll continue to be involved, um, which for us is a, is a great thing. So what does the acquisition of Mercantile mean for Sandin and your plans moving forward? I can tell you what it's intended to mean. It brings the two companies together. And because I was intimately involved in running Mercantile with Saron, I've got a better understanding of the portfolio than anyone else out there. And what we've decided, and this is me with my Sandin Capital investment managers had on. What we've said to the mercantile shareholders and the mercantile board is that we've got no plans to make substantive changes to the portfolio. Mercantile's portfolio, like the Sandin portfolios, is made up of what we all consider to be undervalued companies with interesting prospects. We don't think it's in anyone's interest to sell down liquidate and turn it into a standard portfolio. So we've got a number of investments that we intend to continue to run under the umbrella of uh, Sandin Capital Investments, but will be mercantile uh, legacy investments. In terms of our business, we'll go from having our wholesale unit trust, which is will have been established 10 years next month. We currently manage four pools. So we've got our domestic unit trust, we've got Sandin Capital Investments, we have the sub-advisory arrangement with Mercantile, and we've recently launched a Caymans fund with we're currently raising money for. Um, the merger means that we'll lose one of our discrete clients, but effectively continues to build our fund. So we'll be managing about $150 million or thereabouts in gross assets. Moving away from the mercantile deal, I'm curious to know if you think the slowing of Australia's record-breaking economic expansion is creating more or less opportunity for activism. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think there's a lot of people in Australia asking that question. I think there's probably more people outside of Australia asking that question, certainly in terms of opportunity or economic expansion. I think of the OECD countries, Australia's got the longest running unbroken economic expansion anywhere. There's a lot of questions at the moment about whether that will continue. Australia's really reliant on resource prices. Iron ore is very strong at the moment. Our view is that that is somewhat artificial in that uh, it's been affected by shutdowns in uh, Brazil as a result of the problems that Vale have had uh, with dams and uh, production. We're not convinced that is sustainable and obviously uh, China is a big question. We're not particularly insightful when it comes to macro events. I don't believe that anyone can persistently and consistently reliably predict those sorts of things and maybe some do but I can tell you with great certainty that I can't. So we try and focus on a bottom-up approach. We're not ignorant of what's happening economically, we're not ignorant of what's happening in the world but we just take the view of they're things we can't control 
control, so let's focus on what we can control. And I think that sort of also underscores our approach and why activism works for us is that there are plenty of things out there. I mean, most of the things in life are not within your own control. They're in the hands of fate. But there are some things that you can control. As an activist, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to focus on things that we can do, things that we can influence that might deliver the returns and outcomes we're looking for. In terms of whether there is a slowdown in Australia, I think that's actually a positive for activism and for the reason that I touched on inertia before. I touched on status quo. One of the motives that will get people to change their minds, one of the things that will motivate people to do something differently is fear of loss. So if people think that things are getting worse or if people think that things can get worse, they're more likely to be open to supporting changes. And so from an activist perspective, that's positive. It means that we might find it easier to convince shareholders to change course, to change tack in some of the companies that we target. So it's almost like a contrarian indicator where that fear factor can help us to persuade shareholders of the benefit and merits of change to strategy. So I can't answer your question. I don't know whether it will uh, continue unbroken or whether we will hit a recession or whether we will hit speed bumps. But I think that uncertainty is ultimately beneficial for activists. I mean, if we look back at our returns over nearly 10 years, frankly, most of our best returns have been in times of turmoil. You know, at the moment, we've underperformed our local indices because it's been largely a good news story. Um, A lot of the stocks that we're invested in heavily, we're still working behind the scenes to get certain events to happen. And so we're not expecting returns until those things occur. In that sense, our return profile is very idiosyncratic. You know, we don't get carried by just simply a rising market, which we've had here. So we're not particularly worried about that kind of underperformance. But we also know that our best return periods, our best opportunities have typically been born of turmoil. The situations where Obviously, we can buy cheaply, but also where investors begin to be worried about the status quo and therefore are open to changing their minds. Going off of that, where do you see activism in Australia headed in the near and distant futures? Well, the distant future, I'd like to think it's onwards and upwards, but frankly, that's too far out to tell. I think in the near future, it depends on market conditions. There is a need for activism here, and that I say confidently. There's a need for large investors to understand that activism is not a binary proposition for them. I think what's happening here is that a lot of large investors think that they can do activism themselves and that they can do it by working behind closed doors. No doubt they can achieve something, but The way we see activism is that it's an ecosystem. I mean, investing is an ecosystem. You need all sorts of people. Uh, You need your passive investors. You need your active investors. You need your uh, aggressive investors. You need your private equity fund. What I'd like to see investors here understand is that people like us are not the enemy. We're not the antithesis to what they do. We're complementary. We're looking at targeting companies that don't respond to the subtle approaches. We're looking at targeting companies that haven't acknowledged their shortcomings or try to improve themselves. There's a point at which you have to be prepared to take overt, aggressive public action to try and resolve situations. And that's something that the very large investors are simply not capable nor geared up to do. And so we see people like us as having a role to play in that broader market. The Royal Commission inquiry should leave all investors with no doubts whatsoever that even large companies can do bad things. Therefore, serve as a lesson to say, we do need to be vigilant and we do need to hold companies to account. I think that the concept of accountability is I think often misunderstood and accountability in good times is not too difficult. It's when you are stepping outside of the status quo that accountability becomes difficult. When you are trying to prevent a bad outcome from happening or a suboptimal outcome when everyone else thinks it's okay and that becomes a a challenge because 
in larger organisations, people expose themselves to career risk. No one wants to uh, risk making a bad call. From our perspective, I mean, we're not setting out to make bad calls, but our entire organisation is geared up to buck the trend, to go outside the status quo. And I think that in time, I'd like to think that activism will, in Australia, have a similar place to what it does in the US. Arguably, it's hard to put in a definitive uh, time frame, but we're sort of 20, 30 years behind in that people understand that there's something that's not working as well as it could, but they haven't quite got to the point of being willing to back it in a serious, meaningful way. So I think in 5, 10, 15 years, activism will definitely become a bigger part of what happens down under, but I can't tell you exactly how it will look. It will certainly have an Australian flavour, but I'm also confident that it will be bigger than it is today. Well, we are eager to see where it's headed as well. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Activist Insight podcast. Thank you. I I really appreciate it. Thanks, Alana. That was Gabriel Radzminski, Managing Director of Sand and Capital. That's it for this episode of the Activist Insight podcast, Beyond the Boardroom. If you would like to join us on a future episode, or if you have any comments or questions, please email press at activistinsight.com. Please do rate and review the podcast on whichever platform you are using to help others access our reporting. I'm Ilana DeRay. Thanks for listening.